This is episode number 94, part two, how to train for endurance events with Balance Point Coaching. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. The scientific literature is basically saying that you you get better at, at sweating, you get a little bit better at making decisions, and you feel more comfortable. And then there's some anecdotal evidence on top of that to support the idea of better cardiovascular adaptation, better fluid balance, but all of that is emerging. And today's episode is pretty awesome. If you didn't catch last week's episode with Dr. Stephen Chung, we are doing a deep dive on how to heat train for endurance events, particularly because I'm leaving for the Cape Epic early next week, eight-day mountain bike stage race in South Africa that has really variable weather conditions, anywhere from being cold, freezing, and raining to being over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Before we get into it, I just wanted to say thank you for listening to the show. And last week, we had a breakout week where we were ranked in the top 50 in the fitness and nutrition category in the United States for a couple of days. And that was really cool and really encouraging to see because that's a very competitive category. And that means that you guys are really liking the show. So thank you so much for listening. Thanks so much for sharing it with your friends. And also, if you haven't done it already, it only takes about five seconds. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Things like that do help the rankings and it also helps the searchability. So you just open up the app and you type in my name under search. If you just go straight to the podcast, I believe you can't really leave a review that way. So you have to actually go to the search on the very bottom, type in my name, and then scroll to the bottom and you can leave five-star review. You can type something, which I love reading each and every one of your reviews. So thank you so much for that. I have a couple of announcements before we get started. The first announcement is that it is my apparel and sock company's birthday, Moxie and Grit. I started it about a year ago. It's been an amazing year and it's really been fun to see people wearing the socks and now there's t-shirts and mugs and hopefully some cycling kits by the summer. You guys rock in that stuff and your adventures and saving those up for your special rides. So thank you so much for that. And to celebrate the birthday of Moxie and Grit, I wanted to offer everybody a 15% off coupon code. And the coupon code is BDAYUNICORN15, and that's all capital letters. That's BDAYUNICORN15. So you get 15% off everything in the store. Many of you are already making purchases because you were on the email newsletter, the Moxie and Grit email newsletter, that is. So thank you so much for supporting us and for being a part of Moxie and Grit. My second announcement, it's something I've been working on for the last month, is that I have finally released my own personal cookbook. It is the Plant Power Tribe Cookbook. You can also buy it at moxieandgrit.com. It was just easy to put everything that I'm selling in one place. So it's M-O-X-Y-A-N-D-G-R-I-T.com. And you can get my new cookbook there. The cookbook has about 22 recipes in it. They're all plant-based recipes. And my idea for this book was to keep everything simple and nutritionally dense and healthy so that you don't have to think too much whenever you're cooking. You don't have to worry, is this enough? Am I getting enough protein with these meals? Because a lot of times people that want to simply add in more plant-based meals or even go fully plant-based are unsure about the nutritional content of what they should be eating. So these are all recipes that I made up and recipes that we eat regularly at my house. So you can get that at moxieandgrit.com. 
And also, everybody is welcome to join the free Plant Power Tribe Facebook group. We are approaching 1,500 members, which is really cool. And again, you don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to even call yourself plant-based or any of that. You just have to want to be interested in nutrition and in sharing your successes and stories with people for the healthy plant-based meals that you're adding into your diet. The cookbook is only $11.99. I think it's a great deal. It's a digital cookbook, so you get it instantly after you order it. So thank you so much, you guys. I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so let's get into our guests today. And it's been pretty cool because lately I've been able to record guests from my living room where all of us are in one place. A lot of times the guests are recorded over Skype, and that's really fun, but being in person has a special chemistry. So today's guests are highly experienced in both designing heat training protocols and racing in the heat themselves. So with me today is Luke Way and Stacy Shand. They're also really good friends of mine, and they're really smart and amazing people. Luke Way is a master bike fitter. He does all of my fits, a physiology enthusiast and coach. Luke performs the balance point assessments you might have heard about in previous episodes. And in my experience, his assessments are the most informative and modern assessments out there. I've tested with all the top organizations in the United States. And whenever I found these guys, when I moved to Kelowna, it's balance point coaching and balance point racing. I couldn't believe the amount of information and just the sheer amount of knowledge I learned just from them about exercise physiology. And now I'm a major geek. Luke is also a nationally recognized coach that has had the opportunity to work with the Canadian National Triathlon Team. His vast personal race resume is filled with mountain biking, triathlon, running, and skiing. So if I have a question, I'm going to Luke. And he works with Dr. Andrew Sellers, who you've also heard in a previous podcast episode. And that episode is linked in the show notes. That episode with Dr. Sellers, we really talked about the respiratory system a lot. So between uh, these heat training episodes and that episode, like we have so much information here to help make you faster. And Stacy Shand is a coach and one of the most incredible ultra athletes on the planet. We recorded an entire episode about her exploits around the globe, and they'll be coming out in a few weeks. So you'll get to learn about all these crazy races that Stacy has done. Stacy has finished the Badwater running race twice, which is 135 mile running race through Death Valley, and you experience some of the hottest temperatures, if not the hottest temperatures recorded. As she's done Ultraman, she's done double Ironman triathlons, also called the Double Anvil. She's raced in the Arctic Circle, and she's also done most of the world's hardest 100-mile running races. She has experience in pretty much any environmental condition the planet can throw at you, and the endurance and mental toughness capacity unmatched by us mortals. In this episode, there'll be a little bit of overlap from last week, just because it's the nature of the topic. But in this episode, we talk about the four ways your body dissipates heat, the four levels of heat training. So if you're trying to come up with your own heat training protocol, there's a specific way to do it so that you don't blow yourself up. So the four levels of heat training, we do talk about some of Dr. Stephen Chung's research who you heard about on the podcast last week. We talk about what actually happens when you adapt from a physiological standpoint and how to create your own protocol. We also talk about what to wear on the bike when you're heat adapting, about sauna training, and how to replace electrolytes. So there is a lot of information in this episode, and after the last two episodes, this two-part series on heat training, you'll be an expert too. As I mentioned, I'm about a week out from leaving for the Cape Epic. I leave on the Monday that's just coming right up here. So I'm pretty excited. I feel like I've done a really good job with my heat training. Thanks to Luke and Stacy. They've really created a protocol for me and I've been doing it for 
almost four weeks. And I did it based on the progression of the levels that we covered in this podcast. And I have noticed some physiological adaptations, mostly in sweat rate. So I've noticed that now whenever I am sweating during some of my workouts that my socks and shoes are getting soggy on the trainer, which has never happened before. And it's kind of gross, but that's definitely an adaptation I've noticed is an increased sweat rate. I've also noticed that in the sauna, it doesn't feel as difficult as it did before. And even today, I started doing some exercises in there, some just core work. I even did some jumping jacks to raise my core temperature, and it didn't seem to bother me that much. So I feel like I'm prepared for the heat for the Cape Epic. There's a lot of other things I may or may not be prepared for, but I've done my best with my training given the short notice of this race, and I feel strong, I feel fit, and I really feel mentally prepared. And the mental preparation side of things is super important. I've been doing a lot of studying about mental toughness, and I'm also working on my book about mental toughness. So I'm pretty excited about all the interesting things that I've been learning, and I can't wait to share everything with you. All right, so let's get into today's podcast with Luke and Stacy. I'm excited to have a chat with you guys. Stacey, you've already been on the podcast and that episode is actually going to come out after this one. So those of you who are like, Stacey, Stacey, like you'll get to hear a lot more about her amazing endeavors. But Luke, you're a coach with Balance Point Racing Mm -hmm. and and Stacey, you're also a coach. And Luke does all of my Balance Point assessments and my bike fits. And I've learned a great deal from Luke. Um, You guys have heard from Dr. Andrew Sellers and Luke kind of implements all the different protocols and things that we all talk about and they work together. So welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Yeah, So um, I want to kind of get into heat adaptation training. Like I know there's two different definitions. There's like heat acclimatization and there's like heat adaptation and acclimatizing. Like those, those words all mean something different. So we're just going to call it heat adaptation for this. But Stacy, whenever I first met you, I was actually going to race in the Sahara Desert, the Titan Desert race, and you had done the Marathon de Sab running race. Right. So you gave me all of this great info. I didn't do any heat a- adaptation going into that, but then you also have done Badwater twice. So I just got into Cape Epic last week and coming from the Canadian winter where it's been like, I don't even know how cold it's been here, like minus 10, minus 20. It's been a proper winter this year. Yeah. yeah. And then going to Cape Epic where it's going to be 40 to 50. So that's all in Celsius. So I, I think in Fahrenheit, it's like close to zero Fahrenheit. And then it's going to be over a hundred Fahrenheit at the race. Mm-hmm. So in a panic, I reached out to both of you saying, okay, I know you guys know a lot about heat adaptation. What do I do? So I don't get heat stroke and lose performance. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you reached out. So, um, Stacy, do you want to kind of start with your experience and how yeah. you started implementing this into your training? Perfect. Yeah. So I'm probably like a lot of athletes out there where you have had a race where the heat got to you and at the end of the, the race and at the end, so you're looking back potentially in your race review and you're thinking, yeah, like it was the heat. The heat got to me and that cost me my race or my performance. And yeah, that was, that was me. I had gone to Costa Rica to do a stage race. And in that stage race, there was a 60 degree temperature difference because I was coming from a Canadian winter where it was like minus 30 and then going to Costa Rica, it was plus 30. And yeah, I did terrible that first couple days of the stage race, but then got better as the race was going on. And then I realized like, wow, okay. So I'm acclimating to this or adapting to this heat and I'm doing better. I was the only one who was actually improving because I was actually getting used to the heat. 
I had my performance there otherwise all dialed in. So then I started to really think about the fact that like, I didn't train for the heat. I trained for everything else except the heat. And why don't we as athletes tend to train for the temperature and where that takes so many people's race right there is heat. It's a one thing I hear from athletes coming to me all the time is, oh, well, I'm not good in the, in the heat. And it's like, we can change that. That's adaptable. And so I set the goal of doing bad water ultra marathon, which is through death Valley. It's held on the anniversary of the hottest temperature ever recorded on earth, which was 134 Fahrenheit. So both times that I went to Badwater, it was just shy of that. It was in the 130s, in the low 130s. Super crazy hot. If you've ever heard anything about this race or seen anything about it, you'll see people basically in white suits running on the painted line of the highway because on the actual like black pavement, the temperature can get up to 170. So people run on the white painted line because their shoes will actually melt on the pavement. It was actually 178 when you were there. Right, yeah. It's crazy. Like the temperatures are just crazy. So I had watched these documentaries about this race. Here I am, this Canadian girl. Like I found out in February that I was getting into this race. And I knew right then and there I needed to take my heat training super seriously because the documentaries you see, like it's fatal. It could be fatal if you're running in that kind of heat and you're not prepared for it or stuck in that kind of heat. And so that is when I really started to look into how to properly heat train. I actually hired Coach Luke here to be sort of a consultant on my training because I always sort of, I had always done my own training, but I really wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to mess this up. So I wanted someone who had a lot more of that scientific physiology perspective to really look into what I was doing. Did a ton of research. That's what I do as part of my day job is a researcher. So of course, researching into heat adaptation was something I was super keen on to take this very seriously. One thing I'm sure we're going to touch on is that there's not a lot out there. There's not a lot out there for endurance athletes, and there's not a lot out there for female athletes, but you can get snippets of information along the way and put together a heat training regime so that I could deal with all the other factors that Badwater had to offer and not just like get destroyed because of the heat. And from there on, basically, we developed like a long-term sort of heat training strategy from February to that would take me to the July race. And yeah, that's how it all kind of kicked off. And now that is something I work into almost all my athletes' training plans and my own training plans whenever I deal with races is focusing on those environmental factors that people are going to experience along the way, especially if they say they have issues with heat. Yeah. And there was something really interesting that kind of came up. Luke and I did a balance point assessment back in December and we had no fans on. And during the assessments, you can't like you're wearing a VO2 master, so it's hard to drink water. And I was really shocked to see how poorly I performed during that day with the heat. And I remember having to get off the bike and like lay down on the ground (laughs) (laughs) because I had been training in my garage with like fans on and all those things. And it was like a 30 watt, 30, maybe even 40 watt difference from what I could have done if I wasn't overheated. So that was a big wake up call for me. Yeah. It seems painfully obvious to me these days. I mean, a lot of what we do as a, as a training group and a methodology is identifying limitations and designing training programs to address those limitations. And, you know, like when you learn about cellular respiration, the Krebs cycle, 
of how we produce energy within the muscle, like, you know, one of those byproducts is CO2. And so we address respiratory system, deal with that CO2. Another big thing is, is heat. Our bodies produce a crap ton of heat. And, uh, you know, there hasn't been historically like really great heat training regimes out there to help people deal with this. And this is one of the major limitations for a lot of people. You know, and, and it trickles down. It, heat hinders your, your mental acuity. It hinders your ability to process food in your gut. It, you know, and then, of course, it, it hinders how much energy and performance your legs can output. And so for us to not be training it is just ridiculous to me. It is such a huge part of what makes us successful uh, endurance athletes. So can you get into how we train this? Because I just started doing this and people saw videos of me you know, riding in my garage with a jacket on and then more recently starting to go into the sauna. And those are all things I've learned from you guys. So where does one start whenever somebody says, okay, like I have a hot event coming up. I want to train for this. All right. So the first conversation I like to have is helping people understand, you know, one, like humans are really good at dealing with heat, arguably the best on the planet in terms of expelling heat. And the four major methods that the body deals with heat is uh, perspiration or evaporation, as we call it, radiation, conduction or respiration, and convection. So those four sort of factors. Uh, the perspiration, you're sweating. For that sweat to do any good, that sweat has to evaporate, and that's how you get cooler. That's one of our best adaptations as humans. And then radiation, that's the transfer of energy from one object to another without being in contact. So if you stand close to an ice cube, you're not making contact with it, but you can feel that it's cold. And the conduction, so just air moving over your skin, you can feel it cooling you off. I couple that in with respiration because you can breathe in cool air and that helps cool off your core and you breathe out hot air. And that's one of the things that we measure during our assessment is how much that exhaled temperature changes. Mm -hmm. And in Sonia's case, it was quite a lot. In and, the red. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, that convection, right? That movement of, again, uh, combined with that movement of air over the body. So we have that conversation. So people start to understand how the body is can get rid of heat and then start identifying, okay, what sort of environment am I going into? Am I going into a semi-hot semi-dry conditions or am I going into a semi-hot very humid conditions or am I going into a very hot very humid conditions all of that changes what we need to do for the environment you know if it's very humid you're not going to have that same ability to evaporate if you're over 100% humidity you're not evaporating at all anymore and so your sweat is not working at all in your favor and so now it's just getting rid of fluids if it's uh, very, very hot and dry, like it was for bad water, then it becomes a game of how well we can evaporate water. So for Stacy's case, for bad water, we had to really like isolate how we're going to like cool off the blood without limiting the real estate of skin that evaporates sweat. And so by spraying her down with water, we would totally shut down that peripheral cooling system. And so now we're basically squirting a, you know, a squirt gun at a turkey that's baking in an oven. It's not going to do anything to the core temperature. And so we took basically eight ice packs and put them on various parts of her body to, to cool off the blood as it's moving past certain arteries and, uh, and veins. 
and uh, meanwhile, keeping as much skin open to uh, the air as possible. So her skin was able to uh, evaporate as much as we could. So once people are able to like understand those four factors and they can start to digest them and implement them into like, what is today like? This is what I quiz my junior squad on all the time is like, okay, what is today like? You know, like humidity is such and such. The temperature is such and such. What does that mean for our systems? What are we challenging today? What are we not challenging today? Once we have an understanding of that, then we can start looking at, okay, like, you know, I have an athlete that's going to race in, in Florida in a couple of weeks. And so coming from a winter of, you know, basically our deep freeze, we have to like implement some, some training ideas to help him just be comfortable in Florida. Florida is not exceptionally hot, not exceptionally humid, but it is certainly a far cry from where we are right here. And so there is some things that we have to do. So he is, you know, more adapted for that environment. So I like levels. I like packaging things in these like, you know, easily digestible packages that people can be like, okay, oh yeah, Luke said four levels. Okay, what are the four levels again of heat training? And so the four levels as I have them are level one, avoiding convection or sort of avoiding a fan. And it, uh, it always makes me laugh when you see like these pro athletes that have, you know, a history of, of heat issues in different races and then you see instagram posts of them in their their pain cave or whatever and they have this gigantic 500 watt fan blowing in their face and it's like well of course you're having heat issues you're like completely giving yourself training wheels you're making training way too easy and so put yourself in an environment where you're actually going to challenge the system that you're trying to work and uh and yeah first level is like not giving yourself the aid of a fan as long as you're able to hit your training markers and as long as you're able to uh, recover from your training on a day-to-day basis, then it makes sense to do something like that. Level two would be to hinder convection entirely and challenge radiation, which is overdressing. Overdressing at every hour of the day, overdressing during training, you know, where normally you'd be like taking off your shirt and letting things sweat out or whatever. You actually put on a sweatshirt and you put on a toque. And like you like suffer it out because that's the system that you're trying to adapt. And so just to interrupt here is what's interesting about bad water is that it's an application process and you don't find out until February that you get in and then the race is in July, which is actually a pretty small time frame to prepare for that event because it's 135 miles and you start in the lowest point in you know, in the lower continental United States and Badwater Basin, and you end at Mount Whitney. So you have several mountain passes to climb throughout that process. And so in that, like the moment I found out that I got into Badwater and that was going to be a reality, and I knew that sauna training would be in my future, which we're going to touch on, it was like, okay, I have to start doing everything well, back, yeah, in then, layers. Yeah, we, like, called it, we called it the pre-training. Yeah, it was basically like my very early, like level two, yeah. um, level one and level two heat training in preparation for the more intense level three and four that mm. I would be encountering in my heat training. So yeah. it began then. And so really February to June, everything was in multiple layers. Yeah, <laughs> No that, fans. Yeah. That's the reason why I like the leveling system. It sort of packages it in a way it makes people want to go through the levels, right? Heat training, there is quite a bit of research out on it, but there is a lot of gaps and holes in the research. There's a long way for us to go to really understand what it is that's occurring. You know, for example, I'll be relying heavily on a lot of the research done by a doctor that we know reasonably well named Dr. Stephen Chung, 
who's a professor from Brock University. He's one of the leading physiologists for performance in extreme environments. Um, really fascinating guy. But he's, you know, like done a, a ton of research and a, a ton of work on heat training and environmental training. And he's identified that like, you know, there's been a huge body of work, but really the longest studies done on this are two weeks long. And when I first heard that, I'm like, dude, we got to have a talk. Like what we found is after four weeks, five weeks, then we start seeing some interesting things occurring and no one's even studying that yet. And so it's reasonably untapped and reasonably not academically well understood yet. And that's because, for endurance athletes. Yeah and, yeah. and that's because it's tough. Like, you know, find me a, you know, a bunch of students that really want to be in a sauna for six weeks. It's a tough study to put out there. It, it, it makes more sense for somebody that's training for bad water or they're hyper motivated to like suffer that much. Well, it leads well into level yeah. three and level four. <laughs> level three, uh, oddly enough, is a very hot environment exposure mm -hmm. or sauna or steam room training, depending yes. on the environment that you're going to be training for. Right. And that's just exposure, trying to spend more and more time in there, making sure that you're staying hydrated in there, making sure that you're hydrating afterwards and waiting the appropriate amount of time after being in the sauna to be able to drive again and stuff like that, because it does make you feel uncomfortable. I wanted um, to talk about the sauna training because there's a lot of different research about sauna training, and I had, have already asked you guys about it, but a book that I have read a few times is Dr. Stacy Sims' book, Roar, and she has an altitude and heat training protocol in her book. And hers is something where it's like, I might be misspeaking on this, but it was something like a week before the event, you start going into the sauna and you go in there for like 30 minutes and you're not supposed to drink any water at all. And it had something to do with your blood volume and partial oxygen pressure on the kidneys and then your body producing more EPO and red blood cells. So in terms of what we're doing for our protocol, which is different than what's in her book, why are we drinking in the sauna? So we like to break things down into two major things. And you might've heard this on Dr. Seller's podcast, but basically we look at everything either as a structural or a functional adaptation to whatever we're trying to do. In one or two weeks of training, you're looking at an absolutely functional adaptation. So there's actually no structural changes occurring. You're really just getting more used to things. So um, something in a short race, yeah. like a very short race, like a lot of the one and two week studies we see are for something like a 5K race that mm. won't be longer than a half hour, where with endurance events, it's going to be a lot longer <laughs> yeah. than that. Yeah. Eight and, days. <laughs> yeah. And if you're looking to the research that Dr. Chung has, has brought out, is that anything, you know, a week or a week and a half, two weeks long is very much the feeling, the feeling of how comfortable you are in those environments just gets better. And so what it sounds like, Stacey Sims, what she is suggesting is a very challenging environment that is going to be way harder on your body than the event. And so then you're, you're basically overloading to a point where like, okay, well, it's not so bad when you're in the race environment. Whereas what we're suggesting is actually some structural adaptation. We want to actually see your body adapt and not only feel better, but actually like physiologically respond differently because it is shedding heat differently. It is holding heat differently. It is producing heat differently. And that takes time and that takes patience and that takes discipline and if we can relate this back to what we've learned about respiratory training or cardiac training or uh, neuromuscular training, if we can be so bold as to say it's similar to those things, then we can hang the hat on the fact that it does take time to adapt. And it, the only people that lose an endurance sport are the people that rush the process. When you start cramming, 
we start running into problems. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's just, that just goes across like all these people that are training for marathons and all these people training for this or that. You know, when we start getting in a panicked mode to get ready for something and we start cramming at the last moment, then we start like overstressing the system and you don't like have the structure to deal with what you're doing. And it's just a matter of luck that you get through it or not and you get sick or injured in, in the process. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've definitely done the, I like to call it almost deprivation training where I have done the sauna protocol drinking water and done the sauna protocol without drinking water. And that was more like, it was very useful in a race like Marathon de Sable where your water is actually like r- amount is rationed throughout the race. And it's like, you know, several days, but like you have, you will have limited amount of water. So I needed to become very efficient at hydration and my body adapting to heat with limited amount of hydration. I've seen the studies saying that it, it helps with altitude training. There is value to it. In your case in particular, what the sort of two perspectives I had on it was once again, it was a it's a shorter time frame that we're working with to prepare you for the heat for this the Cape Epic for this great race. But at the same time, you had your 24 hour race that was that fell kind of which was insanely cold and way yes it was like minus six celsius so like 20 (laughs) degrees which is the opposite of what i was training for (laughs) exactly and it fell within that short time within the five weeks and that's one thing is that like heat training if you have those months to kind of lead up in that level two where you're layering and then you get into the sauna training, your body has more time to adapt, right? That adaptation is actually like occurring where if it's a very short time frame, your body, you're really adding an extra stressor onto the fact that you also need to train, mm-hmm. right? And so we have to carefully calculate that and look at the risks and say, is it worth like, you know, if you get a cold or if you, you know, this really beats you up and you have to take an extra couple rest days. We didn't want to take that risk with your training. And so we were like, okay, you know what? Like we can, getting the adaptation is going to be great. I think stressing it with not hydrating, we need you like training every day leading into this race and recovering really well from a 24 hour race in the midst of that. And so actually reducing your hydration is going to cost you some of your training on the bike, which wasn't worth the risk. So we could still get some great heat training in through the sauna, but not risk your health in the span of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it, the funny thing was I found out on a Friday that I was potentially going to Cape Epic. Like I didn't actually sign up till the Tuesday, but on, I had already been training without the fan because of our balance point assessment. And I was so shocked with how poorly that went and how hot that temperature was. I was exhaling so I had already started on level one. So I thought, okay, I'm done with level one. I'm starting level two. So one day I just started with like a long sleeve and like a buff and knee warmers. And I thought, well, that's not that bad. I'm fine. So the next day I, it was too much. I, I put on like a down jacket and I was like sweating it out doing it. And then I was blown for like two or three days and couldn't really train. Yeah. Yeah. And I was so surprised with how much of an impact that had on my training. Yeah, And also exciting, right? You know, I try to reiterate to my athletes that like, the days where we nail down these limitations are the greatest days. You have that knowledge. Like, you know that like, okay, I am nailing it right now. I have absolutely found the chink in my armor and I am working that chink out. When you don't know these things, then you're just, you know, ignorance and is bliss type thing. You're just like trying to make sure that you're quote unquote, you know, I'm doing air quotes right now that you're just working hard. Yeah. And working hard is fine and dandy, 
but working smart is a little bit dandier. Mm -hmm. And that's why having a longer term heat plan going in and doing through the stages, then that way it won't be as hard on you when you start going into the sauna so that we can, obviously we don't want to jeopardize training. That's not the goal at all. We still want to be able to train and actually do better in our race. And so it's just carefully like creating a plan with someone and constantly communicating how that heat training is going so that process can really lead to better performance, which is the overall, definitely the overall goal. But there is like a trust factor that goes into it. And, you know, I go back to watching Badwater documentaries in preparation for going to Badwater. And you're watching these videos of people getting sprayed down by their crews, right? And you see it in races all the time where people just grab an entire cup and just dump it over their head. And I learned from talking to Luke and reading through studies, I was like, okay, so you're, you're telling me we're not supposed to do that? And he's like, no, like that will actually stop your cooling process in the race environment. And it's like, okay, do I trust that? And then that's when I like really went into like doing my, you know, more research. And then you're like, yes, we can't do things like that. Like that will actually hinder my body's ability to deal with heat in that race environment. It's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. So where should I remember having this conversation with you as well, Luke, when I was going to the Sahara, you said, like, don't do that. And you gave me some advice. So can you tell people if they are going to dump water on themselves, like where is the best place to do that? OK, so I touched on a little bit earlier, spraying your, yourself down with cool water, you know, sometimes on in marathons or whatnot. In triathlons, there's, you know, Joe Blow on the side of the road with like water on his lawn. I was like, hey, you want me to spray <laughs> you down? And like, you know, kindly. No, thank you. <laughs> Because one of our most awesome adaptations is our sweat glands. Like we have more sweat glands in our body than almost any animal on the planet. This is one of the reasons why we can run down antelope over spans of days, right? We can just cool ourselves better than anything else. You know, for a panting animal like a dog, they either breathe or they sweat out their tongue and they can't do both at the same time. And so they will hyperventilate after they get too hot. And so, yeah, humans are very, very good at this. And so by spraying yourself down, you're shocking your skin. You're basically closing those pores. You're turning your peripheral cooling system off. And there's been some graphic studies done, and I call them graphic because the method back then in the 90s and and late 80s of how they were measuring core temperature was not quite as elegant as we measured with you with the VO2 master. Um, Was it like rectal? Yeah. (laughs) So so this is a research done by a Dr. PZ Pierce who is the head of medical for, uh, for Ironman Coeur d'Alene and Ironman Hawaii and, and various other Ironmans. I think Ironman Arizona as well. But basically, he uh, had a sample group at these races where on interval throughout the race and after the race, he would uh, check their rectal temperatures. And some of them were allowed to do peripheral cooling with water on their skin and some of them weren't. And uh, what they found almost without fail is that after the instance of cooling or they had somebody spray them down, they felt better but their core temperature increased. So I like using the turkey analogy, but the turkey analogy is actually not that accurate because the turkey is actually gaining energy from the oven when really your oven is the inside of you. You are cooking yourself from the inside out. And so if you shut down your peripheral cooling system, your core continues to cook. And now it has no way of cooling itself other than respiratory system. And that's probably our least effective way of cooling ourselves. And so to just spray yourself down is a short-term gain, I guess, or not even a gain. It, it just makes you feel better. 
You might see it uh, benefit athletes that are doing very short events, like the last portion of Olympic distance races or certainly sprint races, because it's such a short event that just feeling better is enough for them to perform well enough that they don't crater by the end. But when we're talking about, you know, proper endurance, when we're out there for several hours at a time, we need to actually like manage the heat, not just feel better. And when it comes down to managing that heat, that means we need to get your blood cooler. We need to find ways of making your blood cooler. And so one of my favorite things for triathletes and cyclists in particular is tossing ice down your shorts. It sounds weird and it sounds uncomfortable and it is a little bit uncomfortable, but you think about like your your femoral artery that runs down the inside of your leg and your crotch. This artery is the circumference of your thumb. If you cut this thing, you'll bleed out in a matter of seconds. There's so much blood coursing through. And so you can get some ice near that blood that's nice and close to the surface. You're going to be cooling that blood very effectively. And that blood's then going to be pumping around the core of your body and cooling down the rest of your system. That's one way of doing it. But that's a nice dramatic, you know, example of one way that you can cool yourself. Another one is like ice in your hat. You know, again, the, the idea is trying to like cool the blood, not just your skin. Cool. Yeah, I think some of the men thinking ice and crotch and all that stuff probably were just <laughs> cringing at that. I wanted to ask about level four and then maybe go and then I have some specific questions about each of the levels and how to implement that. Cool. So yeah, the, the final level is level four until we think of a level five. And <laughs> <laughs> level four right now is being active while in that extreme hot environment. So while you're in the sauna or while you're in the steam room, actually doing some very light activity like core work or step ups on the stairs or whatever that's mm-hmm. in there. Yeah, it's usually not a reality in a lot. Most people have to access like a, a sauna that's attached to a pool or a gym. And so being able to bring in a bike or something like that is usually unrealistic. And so even just doing a set of core exercises, doing push ups, doing like he said, step ups, any of that stuff that's just going to raise your heart rate is can be very useful and you just you're starting that process of producing a little bit of core heat right so you're in that hot environment and now you're finally asking your body to also produce heat whereas before it was just coping right just coping with being in that in that hot Mm -hmm. environment now you're actually asking it to produce exactly so when we're talking about sort of the typical sauna routine that i had for bad water for example would be about five to six weeks of sauna six days a week And it was really sort of even an acclimation period at the very beginning for the first probably about a week, week and a half, where you're just slowly building up your time in the sauna each day. And then when we're getting to the point where we're actually adding exercise into the sauna is usually about week four and going onwards towards your race. And then you lead up, basically you try and lead up into the sauna until basically you're flying to your race or whatever. So you're just, you're used to functioning in that type of heat. And believe it or not, it's so stressful in the beginning because there's so many cues that your body is trying to give you that it's dealing with heat. And we're amazing that way as well. Like your body wants to protect itself. And so you are carefully pushing that limit, right? So that you don't start panicking in the race, like, you know, you're like, oh my goodness, like I'm getting dizzy or my eyes are like, you know, I'm, I'm overheating, I'm overheating, I'm getting heat stroke, like there's those worries. But you, in the sauna, as you are slowly increasing the time, you are pushing those limits in your body where your body is just like, oh, okay, like I'm not going to panic about this, like we're going to be okay. 
And you, of course, being in a gym or a pool, wherever your sauna may be, if things ever get overwhelming, you're in an environment where you could just step outside the sauna for a minute or two, regain, and then try and just get the rest of your sauna time done, right? And it's amazing how your body just becomes so much more efficient. Like I remember the first week of heat training, I will drink so much water. My body's just almost like panicking going for this water, which it I've seen it happen in people's races too, where they get overheated and they just start drinking water. Then they got the sloshy belly. Then it like, it's a down downward spiral, right? But going through this in a sauna training, my body in that first week, while it was conditioning to this, you know, it overreacted. It, it wanted more water in almost like a panic spectrum. And then in week two, it was like, oh, wow, like I'm not drinking anywhere close to as much water because my body is becoming that much more efficient at using the water that I had, at sweating. And that's another reason why you have to sort of be careful too about hydrating is that depending on if your body, if you're a sweater, you know, we all know people that are like sweaters. Some people are like mega sweaters, some people not so much. I don't ever want to tell someone right away, like without knowing them, don't drink in the sauna because if they're a heavy, heavy, heavy sweater, then we may get into some danger zones right there, right? Everyone requires a different amount of water, but I require just less and less. And it was because my body was definitely becoming more efficient Mm -hmm. at using it. You notice major changes. I remember doing sauna training in June where it was very nice outside and I started feeling cold on a regular basis where other people are like, oh, it's so warm and they're in tank tops. And I'm like, no, I'm training in a sauna that's like, you know, getting up in the eighties. Like it was ridiculously, yes. Like 150 degrees Fahrenheit. Yes, (laughs) yes, exactly. Like ridiculously hot. And so then I just started running hotter. And that's when a lot of these studies and things tell you that your heat training is actually working is when you start to get like goosebumps in scenarios where you shouldn't be getting goosebumps because you're actually starting to run hot. Yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to ask about the actual adaptations that are actually happening. Like, is it that you're losing less electrolyte in your sweat or that you're sweating earlier or that you're sweating less? Like, what are the things actually happening? So, I mean, one of the fun things of being able to chart and monitor respiratory temperature among a whole bunch of athletes, we've been able to just see it with the variety of people. Some people are just better at dealing with heat than others. And this also correlates very closely to how comfortable they are in the heat. And so it's fun to be able to see that there is like a huge variety of people. And sometimes people are very heavy sweaters. Sometimes people are very salty, heavy sweaters. Sometimes they're just a little bit of sweat, but a ton of salt. Like there's just a a huge variety. And so you have to be a little bit careful about making global statements with any of this. It's it's sort of like the nutrition world. Like there is a big variety of what to expect in any scenario, which is why, again, we are huge advocates of like taking your time and doing your due diligence and making sure you're not rushing these processes because it's not fully understood what actually is occurring in your body. We get a better and better idea as we explore things more and more. But the main thing is that we have to be on top of all these changes. And so what's reasonably well understood through the literature, and the literature, again, is very much based in like a two-week period. So we're proposing longer than a two-week adaptation period. But if we're going to go on scientific literature, most of them are going to you know, have the longer-term studies at, at a maximum of about two weeks. And so what they're looking at is an increased peripheral cooling efficiency. And so you become better at sweating. You become better at cooling yourself in these environments. 
And so what Stacy was touching on earlier is that, yes, you do start out to become better at sweating and better at cooling yourself. But after a certain period of time, our case study and sort of anecdotal evidence is leading us towards an idea that possibly could point to the fact that your body actually sweats less and doesn't actually worry about the heat as much and actually doesn't need those peripheral cooling techniques as you might have earlier, which sort of makes sense when you think about people that are just born in very hot environments. Now, is it their genetics? Well, probably a little bit. Or is it the fact that they're just always, always, always in that sort of environment? And so their bodies are just like better at dealing with it, more efficient at dealing with it. Same thing if we go up to the Arctic and you uh, get used to like being in the uh, in that cold environment. Like, Where Stacey's also raced. <laughs> <laughs> right? I get there's, around. <laughs> there's, there's adaptations there as well. But back to like the literature. So there's that uh, cooling efficiency. There's better mental acuity. And so initially you actually get pretty dumb when you go into the hot environment people lose their minds, essentially. Like, you start making poor decisions. It's sort of like being oxygen-deprived. Your problem-solving ability diminishes, and so you start making silly decisions just because you just don't have the resources. Your body is tapped out. And you also might keep going. My biggest issue is I've had heat stroke multiple times, and I still finish the race, which I that's not a brag. That's like, that was kind of dumb. And one of the times I was in Costa Rica and I looked down on my power meter and my heart rate was like 180 and I was putting out hundred Watts and I thought my power meter was broken. And I just dismissed it as that mm-hmm. when really it was, I had severe heat stroke and it was, that was an example of like being mentally dumb, not yeah. able to put two and two together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I know going back to the sauna experiences that I had that one of the first, I think it was the first time I started sauna at the end of week one, beginning of week two, like I would sit in the locker room for like upwards of 20 minutes after the sauna and I couldn't drive. Like there was no way I could drive home. I couldn't even properly dress myself at that point. And I was like, you know, it wasn't that bad, but I just knew I was like, okay, I just need to like get my wits about me because it was really, it was tough. It was tough. And I was going through some of those signals that my body was giving me. Everything was fine. I was never at risk, but my body was just going through this process and then what's ridiculous is like, I got back from bad water and that became my solace was going back to the sauna. I got back from bad water. You think I'd be done with heat training? No, for weeks after I was going and sitting in the sauna for 60 plus minutes at a time because I got so used to it that it became just totally relaxing to me. And your typical person can't just go walk in and get in a sauna for 60 minutes, but it just became so relaxing yeah. to me. And it's because I like had adapted, right? Yeah. And then uh, the other thing that's well documented is just like, it it seems so silly that you just feel more comfortable. And so the scientific literature is basically saying that you you get better at, at sweating, you get a little bit better at making decisions, and you feel more comfortable. And then there's some anecdotal evidence on top of that to support the idea of better cardiovascular adaptation, better fluid balance, but all of that is emerging really. No one's really hanging their hat on that science just yet. And so, I mean, I'm sure, I hope there's going to be some very smart, you know, fledgling scientists listening to this that might, you know, get inspired to look a little bit deeper into this because it's a a really interesting place in in the exercise phys world where, you know, we could all learn a lot. Um, But some of the other emerging sciences is like, does it positively impact blood plasma or hemoglobin? You know, and there's lots of people out there that be like, oh, yeah, definitely. It's, uh, you know, it's doing great. But 
it's pretty anecdotal the uh, the evidence on that and so which is why we want to be very careful with like doing dehydration training and drought training because that is a another massive stressor on your system that we don't fully understand how beneficial that's going to be just yet it might be amazing it might be the end all be all in five ten years but we just you know it's better to be like safe when dealing with stuff like this it's a you're starting to deal with some uh, pretty tightly regulated things when you're dealing with your hydration there. And we still want to have a great race. In the end of the <laughs> day, good results. We're, yeah. we're trying to do all of this on top of however many yes. hours a week we're training, right? Some triathletes are trying to balance heat training on top of 30 hours a week of training. Like that's a recipe for getting sick. You know, if you're training that hard and that much, and then you put yourself in this like hot human environment with, you know, who knows in there, coughing and sweating. So the balance is key. Yeah, I was pretty excited. So we're in Kelowna and there is a gym that I joined and it actually had a separate small sauna in the women's locker room because I was actually dreading going into the sauna and having all these like macho guys in there trying to like tell me what to do because that happens a lot in the gym if you're actually working out. No offense to macho men out there, but don't tell us what to do. We don't need your (laughs) (laughs) advice. But I wanted to actually ask you guys, like not everybody has access to a coach and I know you guys are available for coaching if someone wants to do a heat training protocol, but what if they want to design their own? Like how do they sit down and say, okay, my race is in three months. How do I do this? I would say from my perspective is just arm yourself with as much knowledge about heat training as possible. Look for resources. Like even the Badwater website has an entire page just dedicated to heat training because it's not only the athletes, but it's also the crew that are going to be out there in heat Mm. for 48 hours, right? So they have a lot of heat training resources on there. There's lots, you know, the studies that are out there could be valuable information and just getting... I would say like a key that I have as a coach is really getting to know your body and your signals. I think that is really, 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 really important as an athlete going into heat training is, is being able to listen to your body and, Mm -hmm. and see how you're feeling and balancing that with your training, because of course you are also training while you're doing Mm -hmm. this, right? Yeah. I mean, Uh, how about yourself? Yeah. Like we base so much of our training off of objective measures, right? And so to be able to objectively measure that, yes, I am producing a, a lot of heat and you might be in an area where you might be able to get some heat testing done. I highly recommend it getting done. Or you can fly up here and see Luke. Or you can come on up and uh, and see us up here. And me. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, yeah, get some objective data to support the feeling of how you're dealing with heat. But really, it's time. Even if you feel like you're comfortable in the heat or if you're really uncomfortable in the heat, just give yourself time to adapt. Don't rush this process. Go from level one and build your way through like it. Take, but how long should it take? Like a month at level one or like two weeks? Because I know it's hard to just make a global assumption for everybody because everybody's different. But a lot of people, they're probably like me and they're like, screw it. I'm just going to go through this. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. And just move up way too fast. So having a general guideline might be helpful. Yeah. I mean, I live in a pretty ideal world of like having a pretty good control over my athletes that are around us on a daily basis. And so they're in a constant level one, level two, no matter what. Because when it comes time for them to get ready for a big hot event, I want them prepared to be able to do level two or sorry, level three and level four. And so just being in a constant state of level one and level two allows us that flexibility to do it. And it, you know, it challenges the workout and 
and it, no one seems to really complain that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always get a kick out of people on uh, Facebook and social media who are like, oh, well, you know, I'm waking up extra early in the morning to get my workout done while it's cold instead of going out during the day in summertime, right? Mm-hmm. So that they avoid the heat. And I'm always just like, oh, isn't your race going to technically be like throughout the heat of the day? So then wouldn't that also be probably a good time to train so you're avoiding the temperature that you're actually going to be racing in right which is just doesn't make sense no exactly so give yourself time and know that like the heat training is proven to do a lot of good is going to be uncomfortable for the first couple of weeks most people when they're going from a very well cooled environment will complain over the first two weeks and then after that it starts to get a little bit better but let's say you know, you're you're going to be one and done. You're going to have this one big race and then you're going to go back to a life without heat training. I would say, you know, giving yourself a good, you know, six weeks of level one and level two lead up before getting into the sauna. And then the more time you have in the in the sauna, sort of the all the research is pointing to more time is better. And I also wanted to ask you about how much you should wear when you're on the bike. And this is a question I, I sent to you. Because, I mean, you could like layer up and layer up and layer up. So what's ideal to wear for a level two when you're riding for especially for indoor training, like for outdoor training, you have to wear even more clothes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always a balance between being able to have range of motion. Like we have this like Canadian vision of the child walking to school with their snowsuit on and they can barely like move their arms and they're just marshmallow man walking down the road. Obviously, you don't need to wear that much clothes. So what you do need to wear as extra clothing is like, you know, maybe a sweatshirt. Like, again, we're trying to hinder that convection on the skin. We're trying to stop that air from moving on the skin. So something like like a sweatshirt on or a a toque on your head, some leggings. Yeah, yeah, beanie. In Canada, we call it a toque. (laughs) Eh? And uh, yeah, like I said, leggings on your uh, your legs, just again, to stop that air from moving across your skin. Your turkey is allowed to cook from the inside. And then I also wanted to ask about hydration because everybody loses a different amount of electrolytes and you hear about hyponatremia. And so how should you be replacing your fluids whenever you're doing this? Yeah. I mean, the more you get to learn about heat and how your body deals with heat and panics in the heat, the more you realize how easy it is for people to just start making these silly decisions in the middle of a race. Like you can be at a race in Kona and, you know, you've seen, you know, Paula Nui Fraser do this uh, years ago where she was feeling the heat that year and she just started like pounding the water down because it, you know, it, it felt cool to not cool as in like, I'm so cool, but like actually cold. So she just keeps pounding that water down and causes herself to go into hyponatremia. So yeah, you want to make sure that you're taking in the right amount of water, but you're, you know, trying to make good decisions out there. And so you're, you're not overdoing it. You're keeping that electrolyte balance up trying to make sure that your uh, your electrolyte balance is complete and that means understanding the the four major electrolytes salt magnesium calcium potassium where salt is the prime electrolyte for most people most people have a deficiency in salt um, salt is something what we sweat out and uh, and most people require quite a lot and so our sort of like minimum amount of salt that we ask people to put in their bottles is about 300 milligrams per liter and it goes up from there there are some really heavy salty sweaters that uh, they'll actually take you know closer to a thousand milligrams if their gut is able to handle it and depending on on the event of course but then of course the other ones are essential as well we have magnesium calcium potassium potassium you can get in bananas 
all sorts of and good dates. stuff. And dates. The magnesium and, and uh, calcium typically you have to uh, supplement unless you're on really hard water or something like that. We supplement our calcium magnesium just with uh, essential minerals that we put into our, our drinking water. Um, we have a, a simple drinking water system at home that uh, that we're, we can kind of control. But that's the sort of stuff that uh, that you can load up on and just keep as, a, as a, a cornerstone of your everyday diet versus just having it as a race day supplement. And I know too, the perk of going through heat training is that if you don't have your electrolytes kind of dialed in or your hydration plan kind of dialed in, this gives you the chance to see what that is versus go into a hot environment and overdrink or mm -hmm. like overdo the electrolytes. Like I gave an example of that first week in the sauna, how my body wanted to just drink a lot of water to deal with that heat stress, but then I didn't require as much. And then I was able to really dial in my hydration and electrolyte plan going into my hot event because I had got to practice it in the sauna and got to see in this temperature for how long, how my body was reacting. Cool. And I, I have one last question and it's about if you're going into the humidity, how do you change, like, do you change what you're drinking because you don't have the evaporative cooling effect? And also I've heard about people riding their bike in the bathroom with the shower going. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just saw on Instagram from some of the kids uh, in Norway that are getting ready for a race in Singapore. And so they're locking themselves in the, in the bathroom with their shower blazing and pumping up the heat. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Well, but, and for sauna protocol, one thing is Usually what you do see is a mix of dry and, and a steam sauna. So people will do X number of days in the dry sauna because it's, it's just a different type of heat, but then X number of days in a steam sauna so that they're actually getting, they're practicing that, right? Like seeing how their body reacts yeah. in, in that really humid heat. Mm -hmm. But I'll let you finish the rest yeah, of the Yeah, I mean, so with a super high humidity environment, you're going to be going through a lot of fluids. So you got to make sure that you're having a lot of, of fresh, clean water. We try to get people to separate the idea of electrolyte and fluids. You know, Stacy, I think, completely separates it. She yeah. actually takes electrolyte pills and water completely separately. And that way she can regulate her, her hydration intake completely independently of, of her uh, electrolytes. And, uh, you know, as long as you're able to wrap your head around those three factors, electrolytes, hydration, and fuel, then uh, you'll be successful. And those are the three things that are going to change. Depending on what's happening in your day, your hydration is going to go up or down and your electrolyte level will go up or down. It is not uh, constant um, as a lot of these electrolyte measuring devices out there. You can get these uh, measuring devices that will tell you how much salt you're losing. And uh, our very modest lab has proven a lot of them wrong. And, and I'm not like boasting uh, the sophistication of our lab. It's just easy to prove them wrong. If you were to uh, have a very low sodium diet and take one of those tests, it will show you that you probably have low sodium in your sweat. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't need sodium. That means that you're in a state where you're not able to get rid of a lot. And same thing. So you have to experiment. You have to uh, uh, see what your body can deal with. And your body will constantly change. If your training is adapting, um, your body should be adapting as well. And uh, your level of hydration should uh, change. Your level of, of need for uh, electrolytes should change as well. Cool. Where can people find you guys? Because people might be listening saying like, that sounds great, but there's no way that I'm going to be able to design my own heat training protocol. I want you to do it for me. Like, how do they get in touch with no, you? I mean, 
you can reach out to us. Uh, we're happy to have conversations and talk to people and help out in training. This is what we do. You know, we love to, uh, to talk about this stuff. So you can look us up at uh, balancepointracing.com and shoot us an email or, and we will uh, do our best to give you good, solid consult. Yeah. And as a follow-up from the podcast with Dr. Andrew Sellers, if you guys want the best possible physiology assessment out there, it's worth making a trip up here or flying Luke down there if you have like a team or something, because it provides an incredible amount of insight and an incredible advantage for what you can do for your training. Appreciate that. Yeah. We're uh, very proud of it. One of the coolest things about our team is just our the environment of understanding these physiologic factors and understanding those objective measures. And you have to test them and not be afraid of them and look at them as trainable systems. And I really like that about what we're doing. Cool. Thank you, Stacy and Luke, for coming on the show. Thank Thanks. you so much. Now you guys are practically experts in heat training after this two-part podcast series about how to do it and the science behind it. And if you want to get in touch with Luke and Stacy, go to the show notes. It's mentioned. You can click on the link. It says contact Luke and Stacy. If you want some coaching help from them on designing your own heat training protocol custom to you, feel free to contact them and they'd be stoked to help you out and catch up with you. Big shout out and thank you to my supporters on Patreon. Patreon's a crowdfunding website that helps support the show financially. And even four bucks a month makes a big difference. Like that's how much a latte costs. So four bucks a month, it helps the growth of the show. It really helps me with my staff. I have an amazing team that helps me with this podcast. Roma, who does the incredible audio engineering that makes this podcast sound so good. And my assistant, Tina, who is helping with booking guests and making sure this podcast is uploaded and getting out on time every week. If you'd like to support my work, you can go to patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show. And if you want to make a one-time donation, you can do that too. And you can just send me an email and we can get that set up. I also have my free bi-weekly email newsletter where I send out tips, articles, blog posts that I've written and race recaps with lessons I've learned. And the next major newsletter coming out is going to be about the Cape Epic. So if you don't want to miss that, make sure you go to sonyalooney.com slash newsletter and you will get on the list. And I try to be really cognizant of not sending a lot of emails because my email gets overloaded with newsletters and things that are just too frequent. So I'm trying to figure out the sweet spot. If I'm being honest, I've probably been sending out a newsletter once every three weeks, but I'd love to hear from you guys. Like what is optimal for you? How often do you want to hear from me? And thanks again for that. All right, y'all. Thank you so much for joining the show, for listening, for being part of my community. And thanks for also posting the show on Instagram and Facebook whenever you like an episode. It makes a huge difference and I love seeing it. it makes me feel extra motivated and excited. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.